From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade Menezes is in the house. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And we, you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall sporting his back-to-back Birmingham Stallion USFL Championship T-shirt uh, today for the program. <laughs> um, is, is producing the program. Uh, Matt Gubensky is, uh, I don't think he is wearing his Rocket City Trash Panda jersey today. But uh, he will sport that from time to time, uh, paying homage to the minor league baseball team in Huntsville here in Alabama. And Jeff Burson, magnificent person, is taking care of social media. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every single Tuesday, neither a stallion nor a trash panda, but a father of mercy, Father Wade Menezes, how are you? I'm doing great, and I hope that uh, Michael isn't getting too prideful wearing that T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if so, you know, there is such a thing called confession to confess such pride. So there you have it. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the USFL. By its very nature, I think that there's a limit that <laughs> right. would keep you from going over the line there. <laughs> so, but anyway, Jack, I so, am doing great. So speaking of worshiping calendars... <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. And and a shout out to all the parishioners here at Holy Rosary Parish in Hillmar, California, where I am for these next three weeks filling in for the pastor while he's visiting uh, my own family's native, the Azores, uh, and also mainland Portugal, Father Isaac Menezes, who spells it a little different than I do in, in my family. We spell it Z-E-S at the end. He spells it S-E-S at the end. So we wish him safe travels with his mom and his brother and other relatives that he will be uh, visiting the islands with and, and visiting the ones who live there as well. And uh, it's a joy to be filling in uh, this month of July for him. And at the same time, being near my own family, uh, because Hilmar is not that too, not that far from Modesto or Turlock. So it's a win-win situation. So it is great to be here. But yes, we do have such things, Jack, called uh, Catholic devotional appropriations to the seven days of the week and the 12 months. And I'd like to comb through briefly all 19 of these. Again, the seven days of the week and the 12 months. You know, the liturgical cycle of the church gives shape and meaning to the whole year. Uh, And each season brings new significance, no doubt. But the liturgical year is just the beginning. So I want to ask my listeners today, did you know that Holy Mother Church has also assigned meaning to each day of the week and month of the year? This is true. Uh, Let's briefly examine the significance of each day of the week and month. So on Sundays, we honor 
in a special way the Holy Trinity. Sunday is dedicated to the Holy Trinity. This is entirely fitting as Sunday is the first day of the week and the day when we offer God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune Godhead, our praise, adoration, and thanksgiving. Monday is traditionally held in honor of the Holy Angels. Uh, The day in which we remember the Holy Angels is Monday. Angels are powerful guardians and each of us is protected by one. Many of the saints had a great devotion to the angels in general and to their guardian angel in particular. On Tuesdays, like when we have Open Line Tuesday, we remember in a special way Jack the Apostles. The Catholic Church is apostolic, that is, it's founded on the authority and teaching of the apostles, most especially that of St. Peter, to whom Jesus gave the keys of his kingdom, and each bishop is a direct successor of the apostles. Uh, The fact that the Church is apostolic is also one of the four marks of the Church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic that we uh, proclaim every Sunday in the Creed. Wednesday, of course, is in honor of St. Joseph. St. Joseph is known as the prince and chief patron of the Church, indeed the protector of the universal Church, as the earthly father of Jesus. He had a very special role in protecting providing for and instructing Jesus during his earthly life. Now that Christ has ascended into heaven, St. Joseph continues his fatherly guardianship uh, of Christ's body, the church, and that's worth uh, remembering. Uh, On Thursdays, of course, uh, the day of the Last Supper, we celebrate the Holy Eucharist. Our Lord instituted the Most Holy Eucharist on a Thursday, Holy Thursday evening, the night of the arrest. So it is fitting that we remember this greatest of sacraments on this day, this source and summit of the entire Christian life, as Vatican II teaches so beautifully. The Eucharist is the greatest gift of God to mankind, as it is nothing less than Jesus himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity, truly, really, and substantially present in the Most Blessed Sacrament of the Altar, the Holy Eucharist. What gift could be greater, huh? And Friday, of course, we celebrate in a special way the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was scourged, mocked, and crucified on a Friday, that first Friday that we call good, huh? Good Friday. Because of this, the church has always set aside Fridays of days uh, as penance and sacrifice. While the church in the United States does not require abstinence from meat per se on Fridays, except for Good Friday, of course, penance is still required in one form or or another. Uh, This day should always be a day of repentance and a day in which we recall Christ's complete self-sacrifice to save us from our sins. And of course, the Fridays during Lent, we also uh, abstain. Saturday, uh, Our Lady, of course, uh, there are a number of theological reasons Saturdays are dedicated to Our Lady. Perhaps the most significant is that on Holy Saturday, when everyone else had abandoned Christ in the tomb, she was faithful to him, confidently waiting for his resurrection on the first day of the week. So there you have it. Again, the seven days of the week uh, from Sunday through Saturday, the Holy Trinity, the Holy Angels, the Apostles on Tuesday, St. Joseph on Wednesday, Thursday, the Holy Eucharist, Friday, the Passion, and Saturday, our Blessed Mother. And if we don't finish up these 12 months here, uh, Jack, we can finish them up when we come back from the break, but I'll, I'll start them now. Uh, you know, f- January is the, is the most uh, holy name of Jesus. Uh, we kind of set January apart uh, in a special way after the celebration of Christmas in December. There is no name more powerful than the name of Jesus. The Catechism uh, sums up the power of this name beautifully. The name Jesus contains all. God and man, and the whole economy of creation and salvation. Uh, To pray Jesus, quote-unquote, is to invoke him and to call on him with 
within us. His name is the only one that contains the presence it signifies. Jesus is the risen one, and whoever invokes the name of Jesus is welcoming the Son of God who loved him and who gave himself up for the salvation of the world, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church number 2666 tells us. February, of course, the Holy Family. The Holy Family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, the Holy Family of Nazareth, is an earthly reflection of the Holy Trinity, we say. Uh, by meditating on the Holy Family of Nazareth, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, we can learn the meaning of love, obedience, and true fatherhood and motherhood. We are also reminded that the family is the foundational unit of both the society and the church. March, of course, is in honor of St. Joseph. Uh, March 19th, right there in the middle of the month, we celebrate the solemnity of Joseph, husband of Mary. St. Joseph is the icon of God the Father, silent but active, and perfectly providing for the needs of all. Uh, the church constantly invokes the protection of St. Joseph as the patron of the universal church, admonishing us to ite ad Joseph in the Latin, go to Joseph. April is in honor of the most blessed sacrament, Holy Church is the guardian of the Holy Eucharist. For 2,000 years, she has guarded this treasure, administering it to the faithful and proclaiming that it is nothing less than Jesus himself. We can never be too devoted to the Most Blessed Sacrament or show it too much honor. And of course, May, the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, Our Lady has long been associated with the beauty of flowers and the coming of spring each year. This is fitting because she is both beautiful and the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the life and light of the world. And so in May, uh, the church remembers our glorious Blessed Mother with crownings and processions in her honor. And June, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, of course, we just celebrated June. The Sacred Heart of Jesus is the revelation of God's immense love for us. It is often depicted as a fiery furnace, pierced and broken, but beating with love for each and every one of us. The Sacred Heart is also a profound reminder of the humanity of our Lord, uh, for his heart is not a mere symbol, but a true physical reality. And July, the precious blood, the blood of Christ saves us from sin. It is the blood of Christ that gives us the hope of heaven. St. Paul tells us that Jesus reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Without the blood of Christ shed for us, we all would be lost. So there you have it, those first uh, seven months, uh, January, the holy name of Jesus, February, the holy family, March, St. Joseph, April, the blessed sacrament, May, the blessed Virgin Mary, June, the sacred heart of Jesus, and July, the precious blood, and we will continue with August when we come back. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Great item to tell you about at EWTN's Religious Catalog. It's a book called Adam and Eve After the Pill, Revisited by Mary Eberstadt. The celebrated author, Mary Eberstadt, continues her groundbreaking examination of the legacy of the sexual revolution. 
In a follow-up to her 2012 book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, she investigates the revolution's transformations in three spheres, society, politics, and Christianity, including an analysis of the U.S. Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. She connects the dots between shrinking, broken families and rising sexual confusion, seen most recently in transgenderism and related phenomena. The book also traces the disillusion of the home to signature developments in Western politics, especially the increase in acrimony, polarization, street violence, and identity politics. Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited is both an indispensable blueprint for today's emerging revisionism and a manifesto for a more humane order to come. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping right now on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. Only use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone and give us a call. Father Wade, August. I'm dying. I'm dying here. What's August? August. My own birthday month, by the way, St. Rose of Lima. August 23rd. I just thought I'd throw that in. August is the Immaculate Heart of Mary, Jack. The Heart of Mary is a motherly heart, a heart full of love and mercy for her children. The Heart of Mary is also the channel through which all the graces of God flow down to us. She is our life, our sweetness, and our hope, as the Hail Holy Queen, the Salve Regina, says so beautifully. And of course, uh, August 15th is the Assumption, and August 22nd is the Coronation of Mary, one of the little octaves throughout the whole liturgical year, uh, one of the little Marian octaves. You know, precisely because she's been assumed body and soul into heaven, we properly crown her on the eighth day celebration, the 22nd, following the 15th of August. September is the Seven Sorrows of Mary, or in honor of Our Lady of Sorrows, we could say as well. Aside from Jesus Christ, the God-man, no human being has suffered more than our Blessed Mother. In perfect obedience to the will of God, she consented to her son's torture, humiliation, and brutal execution for our salvation. As any parent knows, watching one's child suffer is the greatest suffering of all. She still bears the sufferings of her divine son in her immaculate heart. October is the Most Holy Rosary. Uh, The Most Holy Rosary is one of the most powerful weapons the church possesses, one of the greatest devotions of the church. We are constantly exhorted by saints popes, and our Lord and our Lady themselves in approved apparitions to pray this simple yet profound prayer. Accordingly, Holy Mother Church has set aside a whole month uh, for devotion to and promotion of this beautiful prayer that uh, recalls therein uh, the economy of our salvation by the mysteries of Christ with the five joyful, the five luminous, uh, the five Uh, sorrowful and the five glorious mysteries of the rosary, all 20 mysteries of the rosary. November, of course, is the holy souls in purgatory. We honor them in a special way. The holy souls in purgatory, Jack, are suffering a great deal, and they cannot pray nor merit for themselves any longer after their death. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and as members of the body of Christ who are assured heaven, following their temporal punishment, we must pray and offer sacrifices for those who have gone before us, asking that they may rest in the light of God's presence. And December, of course, the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception of Mary is a profound mystery. In the Immaculate Conception, Mary was without sin from the first moment of her conception. She is perfectly united forever to her spouse, the Holy Spirit, her mystical spouse, the Holy Spirit, and their fruitful union produced a wedding of heaven and earth in the God-man, Jesus Christ, 
we will meditate on these truths for all eternity, as they are inexhaustible. You know, time is a gift. We know that old saying, and the church takes seriously the call to sanctify all things, even time itself. And so these Catholic devotional appropriations or significances, we could say, of the seven days of the week and the 12 months is a profound reminder that our lives are finite and that time should not be squandered away. As the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, Psalm 90 verse 12. But more than anything, it reminds us that time is a gift from God and with him and through him all things are holy and nothing is without meaning. And I thank our friends at uh, CatholicGentleman.com for uh, this article, which I've adapted for this springboard topic today, on the significance of the different days and and months uh, and what the devotional appropriations are of each. Uh, The article is titled, Sanctifying Time, the Catholic Meaning of Days and Months. Uh, Again, found at CatholicGentleman.com, a great website for the guys with some great articles, uh, both single, married, and consecrated religious men. Check out CatholicGentleman.com. Again, the article that I adapted today's springboard topic from is titled at that website, Sanctifying Time, the Catholic Meaning of Days and Months. They also produce a podcast. You can find that at EWTN's Podcast Central. Just go to EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts. Grab one of these open phone lines. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Kathleen in Boise, Idaho, listening on Salt and Light Radio. Kathleen, you are on with Father Wade. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Um Okay, Father, I had a bright idea. In the Apostles' Creed, you know, when uh, we say, you know, we say he descended to hell, but or he, he descended to the dead, um, I have a thought. I'm, I'm just, I wonder what your thought is. I thought, you know what? They were in purgatory. That was purgatory. So, I, what do you think? <laughs> Well, I think what the Church thinks, and that that is that it was the abode of the dead who died in the grace of Christ, but because the gates of heaven had not yet been opened, because Christ himself yet had not entered into heaven, all to be seated definitively at the right hand of the Father, although he had resurrected, he descended to the abode of the dead uh, to release them and then to call them. These were the ones who... Uh, were ready for heaven, but yet could not enter it because Christ's own entrance into heaven had not happened yet. In fact, indeed, his resurrection had not happened yet. So many of the of the just prophets, for example, Adam and Eve are included. You know, uh, in the Apostles' Creed, as it said that it, that Jesus, after his death, he descended into hell. And since then, uh, we priests are asked many times, you know, by worshipers, what does this affirmation mean in the creed? Surely, Jesus could not have gone down literally into hell, the place of the devil and the devil. Damned. And if he did so descend, then what was the purpose? Uh, surely the damned cannot be saved, right? Uh, so what was his purpose as going down there? Well, it wasn't the hell of the damned. That's the thing. Uh, in the context of the Apostles' Creed, hell does not mean that we under- does not mean what we understand by the word today. The Catechism of the Catholic Church explains this point very clearly. It says, Scripture calls the abode of the dead to which the dead Christ went down.
down to Sheol or in Hebrew or, or in or Hades in the Greek, because those who who are there are deprived of the vision of God, such is the case for all the dead, whether evil or righteous, while they await the Redeemer. That's number 633 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Jesus was not going into the place of the damned, but to free the just who had gone before him. So many of the Old Testament just figures, for example. Jesus went into hell to preach the gospel to the dead, as the Catechism puts it. The descent into hell brings the gospel message of salvation to complete fulfillment. This is the last uh, phase of Jesus' messianic mission, a phase which is condensed in time, but vast in its real significance, the spread of Christ's redemptive work to all peoples of all times and of all places. Um, you know, there's an ancient homily for Holy Saturday that's quoted in number 635 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It expresses powerfully the, the meaning of Jesus' descent uh, into this hell, uh, to the just. It reads in part, and this is a direct quote, the king has raised up all those who have slept ever since the world began. He has gone to search for Adam, our first father, as for a lost sheep. Greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness in the shadow of death, he has gone to free from sorrow Adam in his bonds and Eve captive with him, he who is both their God and the son of Eve. Jesus says to Adam, I am your God who for your sake has become your son. I order you, O sleeper, now awake. I did not create you to be a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead." Okay, so uh, in early Christianity, then, we could sum it all up by saying hell had two meanings. It was, on the one hand, the place of the literal damned, who have no hope of heaven whatsoever, who had fundamentally rejected all that is good and just, and condemned themselves to an eternity without God by purposeful, unrepentant, mortal sin and persistence in it till the end, as number 1037 of the Catechism teaches so clearly. Uh, but on the other hand, it had a more neutral meaning as a place where the just who lived before Christ lived went to await their salvation following uh, the resurrection of Christ from the dead and his own entrance into heaven. Now, the purgatory we have now exists following the resurrection from the dead, uh, and Jesus is entering into heaven directly, and it is for those who die in an earth, uh, who die from earth, not yet perfectly purified, but still attached to sin, but not in a state of mortal sin. In other words, their sins are forgiven them, but the temporal punishment still remains. And the temporal punishment can be atoned for either on earth while still living or in purgatory. And they died on earth, not yet perfectly purified of that attachment to sin. Because remember, only absolute purity and detachment from sin can enter heaven. So the purgatory that you're positing was Jesus' descent to the dead that we say in the creed every Sunday at Mass is not what the church teaches. I could see why you saw possibly that. I could see why you kind of made that connection, don't get me wrong. But purgatory is for those following the resurrection of Christ and following his ascension into heaven to be seated definitively at the right hand of his Father, who die not yet perfectly purified. Jesus' descent to hell or to the dead uh, at the time of his resurrection was to uh, retrieve the just, like Adam and Eve, who died and could now enter heaven immediately with him at the time that he entered heaven in his ascension. Great question. Thank you so much. It, 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 it gives a, it's a question that gives great clarity to what the church teaches by that statement in the creed. Thank you so much.
God bless you, Kathleen. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. We have an email from Robert, and he says, Hello, I was listening to EWTN app earlier to Open Line with Father Menezes. He received a question regarding the validity of the consecration of the Eastern Orthodox, Oriental, and Anglican Catholic Churches. He answered that the Anglican Catholic Church, and we'll finish this after the break, as I have lost all track of time, Father Wade. I've done it too, Jack. (laughs) 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. As I was saying, (laughs) we have an email here from Robert who says, Hello, I was listening to EWTN app earlier in Open Line with Father Wade Menezes. He received a question regarding the validity of the consecration of the Eastern Orthodox, Oriental, and Anglican Catholic Churches. His answer was that the Anglican Catholic Holy Communion was not valid because of doctrinal differences. What are those differences that invalidate the host and the wine not being the true body and blood of Christ? Great question. Uh, All this is spelled out very, very clearly in the 1896 papal encyclical, the highest form of papal teaching of Pope Leo XIII, Apostolicae Curae. Uh, you can find it online at vatican.va. Uh, it's on the nullity of Anglican orders, and he spells out very clearly uh, that primarily the reason is they've lost their apostolic succession uh, through the establishment of Henry VIII beginning to name his own bishops who were not validly ordained. Um, and priests later on of those succeeding generations in the English church, the Anglican church, again, because of that newfound succession that was not apostolic makes their further generations non-apostolic. So um, they lost primarily through the, the, the apostolic succession that was lost by the establishment of Henry VIII. Also today, we could even say uh, even further, as, as was already seen within the third generation following the church falling away from the, the Roman church uh, by the 1800s, um, we could see that uh, even the words of consecration began to be uh, different as the English Anglican church came up with its own translations. Uh, so there's a, a whole host of reasons, and these are very clearly spelled out, again, in the papal encyclical on the nullity of Anglican orders, Apostolicae Curae, Pope Leo XIII, 1896, and it's found at vatican.va and a whole host of other websites, uh, such as papalencyclicals.net, papalencyclicals.net. And it's actually not that long of a document uh, uh, Pope Leo XIII is very clear-cut, short and to the point. Uh, First, he begins the encyclical saying why unity is so, so important to protect the four marks of the Church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, because if that unity is not present there, all four marks, not only the oneness of the Church, but the other three marks, uh, its holiness, its Catholicity, meaning universal, and its apostolic uh, foundation are all challenged. And then he goes into the specific reasons, beginning with the 
separation of Henry VIII and what's happened uh, in the last 300 years because of that, especially through um, the, the uh, apostolic succession being disrupted. And then other trends that is being seen that are being seen then in the English church, like the, its own formulation of its own translations of the rituals, uh, without the proper words of institution, etc. That further challenges of the unity, and only enforces and strengthens the nullity of the orders and in the the validity of the sacraments themselves, let alone the orders themselves. And then he ends the encyclical by uh, praying for unity, that one day the English church will reunify with the chair of Peter. Great question. Again, apostolicae curae on the nullity of Anglican orders by Pope Leo XIII, an encyclical, the highest level of teaching by a pope, an encyclical, quote, end quote, and that's from 1896. Great question. Thank you so much. Next stop for us is Kansas City, Missouri. Sarah is in Kansas City listening on Catholic Radio Network. Sarah, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Go right ahead. I, I, was, I was telling your um, person that answers the, the, the phone, I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous, I'm sorry. I was just wondering about what happens to the soul of babies who are aborted. And can they get before they're baptized? And can once, you know, can there ever be such a thing as baptizing a baby? Uh, a, a baptizing what? I'm so sorry. Uh, baptizing an aborted baby. Yes. Yes, you 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 can ba- uh, baptize. Uh, a, a, an aborted baby or a, or a natural stillborn baby, for example, uh, provided there is some form of the humanity there, b- depending on how far along it is, and also um, commend that baby and its soul uh, to one day be reunited by God at the second coming of Christ uh, to one day enter heaven for all eternity. What does the Catholic Church teach as to what happens to aborted babies? Well, the church traditionally is held limbo, L-I-M-B-O, as an intermediate place that is not purgatory, not surely not hell, uh, because there's no mortal sin involved in an aborted baby. Uh, they, they could never have sinned mortally. Um, and uh, because they're not baptized, could not enter heaven immediately, such as a baby that's baptized who has not yet re- uh, attained the age of reason yet. So there's, the, there's been this theological conjecture or this theological positing of limbo, but the church has never, ever taught that officially as doctrine. Again, it's what we call theological conjecture or theological positing. We, we posit there's, there's a place of limbo because the, ba- the aborted baby is not baptized, let's say, I'm, I'm using the example of those that are not baptized, and also uh, uh, through no fault of its own, uh, surely uh, did not die of its own, it, it never attained the age of reason at age seven, could never have, have mortal, committed mortal sin, where the church teaches that a baby that is baptized, that dies before the age of reason around age seven, enters heaven immediately as a saint uh, because uh, they never sinned and they were baptized. So there's absolute purity there, okay? No venial sin, no mortal sin, because they died before the age of reason and they were indeed baptized. And the church holds the age of reason to be around seven. But the, with the aborted baby that's not baptized, what happens to them? Or any baby that's not baptized. It doesn't have to necessarily be aborted. I know you're asking specifically about an aborted child, but this could be with any baby 
that is not baptized, what happens to it? Well, we can have theological conjecture or theological positing that it goes into a state of limbo uh, until the end of time when there's only going to be heaven or hell. Now, that said, I want to make clear the church has never taught limbo as an actual doctrine of the church, and there's a great statement by Cardinal Ratzinger prior to becoming Pope Benedict XVI, uh, commenting on St. Faustina's diary, Divine Mercy in My Soul, where he uh, talks about uh, children who die before the age of reason, again, around age seven, who have not yet been baptized. He says something to the effect, and I don't have the statement in front of me right now, but he says to the effect of this, he says, the more and more we learn and understand the mercy of God, the less and less limbo is needed as a theological conjecture or a theological positing. We can have the virtue of hope, he states, that the unbaptized or non-baptized child who dies before the age of reason, aborted or not, could just be a natural stillborn death, for example, but is not baptized, but dies before the age of reason, we can have the virtue of hope that it enters heaven immediately. Now, that's not church doctrine either. That was simply a statement by Cardinal Ratzinger, who was then the prefect or the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, one of the major dicasteries of the Catholic Church in Rome. Uh, even he didn't declare that as de fide, Latin for of the faith, meaning doctrinal. He was simply positing that himself, because we've had such a, a great theological development of understanding more and more the mercy of God through the approved writings of St. Faustina Kowalska, the Divine Mercy Seer, that he's simply saying that the more and more we learn about the mercy of God, uh, the less and less is the theological conjecture of limbo needed. So we give it to the mercy of God, and, and we understand that those two uh, conjectures are, are valid in the life of the church, and that one could uh, conjecture either one of those, that they, they could very possibly enter heaven immediately upon their death, even though non-baptized, uh, because they died through no fault of their own not being baptized, and secondly, that they go to a place of limbo. You can hold both conjecturally or as a theological positing. Great question. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Terry in Fairfax, Virginia, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Terry, you are on with Father Wade Menezes. Hello, thank you for taking my call. Hello, Father. Um, quick, Well, quick question. I'm going to try to summarize it. Um, can the outcome and recommendations of the Senate of Synods in agreement with the Pope actually can change the Catholic teachings, mostly on the moral issues. I mean, we saw the Pope redefine more um, the death penalty, and the Catechism was rewritten. So can other topics we be also rewritten? And lastly, what, what can I do personally not to go into doubt over the current teachings of the Church versus the dissenting theological and pastoral opinions of so many clerics involved in the various synods. Thanks. You're welcome, especially like the German synod, where there seems to be a lot of dissent. Pope Francis has been very, very clear that synods are not instruments to change church teaching or doctrine, but rather to help apply the church teaching more pastorally. 
Okay, so if it's something that's de fide, especially the moral issues, okay, like the, the evil of adultery, the evil of abortion, etc., that could never, ever be changed. We can have pastoral advancements applied to how better um, uh, walk with those individuals to bring them back into full communion and, and practice the sacraments within the church, but the teaching cannot be changed at all. And uh, we would have a schism before the protection of the papal office, um, which, which is infallible in regards to faith and morals, those two categories. There would be a schism of the individual conference before there would be a change of doctrine, because the latter is just not possible. Uh, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against her. That's one of the chief uh, uh, scriptural passages from specifically Matthew 16, 18, that ascertains the doctrine that is de fide, that uh, the office of Peter is infallible in regards to faith and morals. Now, can an individual person who is in the office of Peter, can he err personally in regards to, example, as a man, how he lives his life? Yeah, look at the life of Pope Alexander VI, for example. He was a, a notorious sinner. In fact, so much so that um, uh, many of the heretics of the time thought that precisely because he was so loose morally that they could uh, sway him over to their camps on the different heresies that they held. And yet, Despite the fact him being so sinful as an individual man, he never ever erred in faith or morals. In fact, he he stood strong. So I like to say that the life of Pope Alexander the Sixth uh, from the 16th century is is one of the best examples we have of the validity of the doctrine of papal infallibility, because the heretics of his age could never ever swoon him in regards to erring, in regards to faith or morals. So we would have a, 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 a conference breakaway and schism before we would ever have a de fide doctrine change. So again, Pope Francis has been very clear that synods are not instruments to change church teaching, but rather to help apply church teaching uh, more pastorally. So great questions. Thank you so much. Next stop, Buffalo, New York. Paul is in Buffalo listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Paul, you're on with Father Wade. Uh, thank you for the show. I appreciate it. Um, thank a you, couple Paul. of calls ago, you, had, you talked about that um, uh, purgatory. Okay, there. Um, so my question about purgatory is, is that dogma, or is that, as you said, theoretical conjecture, or uh, that's the first part. The, the next one would be, um, no one can be... Uh, Pure enough to be before God. So, doesn't everybody have to go to purgatory? Uh, well, purgatory is about atoning for temporal punishment for your already forgiven mortal and venial sins, and it's called temporal, meaning time-wise, uh, because you can fulfill that either in earth, on earth while still living, or in heaven. So to answer your first question, yes, purgatory is definitely de fide. It's a state of final purification after death and before entrance into heaven for those who died in God's friendship, that is, in a state of sanctifying grace, but were only imperfectly purified. A final cleansing of human imperfection before one is able to enter, uh, excuse me, uh, a final cleansing of human imperfection before one is able to enter the joy of heaven, is what purgatory is. And it is possible to make that atonement on earth while still living. So I, I urge you to go to my morning offering that I have listed as a blog at fathersofmercy.com. It's the morning offering I say every morning, where I ask the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the courage and fortitude to be able to atone for all temporal punishment now, 
while still living on earth for all my past sin, whether venial or mortal, to atone for it now, thereby uh, attaining the greatest of all graces of attaining heaven immediately upon my death. This should be a daily prayer for all of us. You know, I often tell my congregation that I preach to on this topic, um, you know, God's plan A for us is to go straight to heaven when we die. His plan A for us is to go straight to heaven when we die. His plan B for us, if you want to call it that, would be to go to purgatory, because at least the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven. Uh, That said, who wants to go there? I don't want to go there. I'd rather pray for the courage and the fortitude to be able to atone for my temporal punishment now and become perfected now by embracing my sufferings and etc. By the way, there's there's six salvific aspects of suffering or six redemptive aspects of suffering. In fact, I preached on them this past weekend, the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time here at Holy Rosary Parish in Hillmar. That's also listed as a blog uh, at fathersofmercy.com. On the search bar, simply put the words morning offering for the morning offering prayer, or on the search bar, simply put benefits of suffering, or six benefits of suffering, where we can embrace our suffering now while still living on earth, and thereby atoning for already uh, forgiven past mortal and venial sin that still has temporal punishment owed to it. Why does it still have temporal punishment owed to it? Because sin is messy. I mean, you can have an alcoholic who, who confesses his bout with alcohol twice this last month. He got drunk to a point of drunk, he drank to a point of drunkenness, both times had a terrible verbal abuse of falling out with his wife. They haven't apologized yet. In fact, she's, she's moved out. Uh, he went to confession to confess the, the two times of falling to drunkenness and the two times as well that he had the verbal abuse towards his wife. And that's fine. He, he's, he's absolved of those four sins, the two fallings with his wife and the two fallings with alcoholism. He's absolved of that by the priest, but the temporal punishment still remains. He, he and his wife are still disrupted by this. They've never, he's never apologized to her yet because she's moved out. So sin is messy. So there's personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic consequences to personal sin. Even after the sin is confessed, the temporal punishment remains because of these four categorical consequences to sin, both mortal and venial. Again, the personal, the social, the ecclesial, and cosmic. And this is why the temporal punishment remains and it needs to be atoned for. So purgatory is de fide. It's only God's plan B for us. His plan A for us is to go into heaven immediately. So remember, temporal punishment can be atoned for on earth while still living, like my morning offering prayer states very clearly, and the six benefits of suffering state that you can also find at fathersofmercy.com. Or it can be atoned for in purgatory after death. Okay? Eternal punishment, eternal punishment can only be atoned for in hell. And number 1037, as I said earlier this hour, uh, makes it very clear that God predestines no one to hell uh, to go there. In fact, I'll, I'll read it for you verbatim, number 1037 of the Universal Catechism. Uh, if I can pull it up here fairly quickly. Yeah, number 1037, God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin... Uh, is necessary and persistence in that mortal sin till the end. Uh, In the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of her faithful, Holy Mother Church implores the mercy of God constantly, who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And then in the Eucharistic uh, prayer one, the Roman canon, we hear these beautiful words, Father, accept this offering from your whole family, grant us your peace in this life, save us from final damnation, and count us among the among those you have chosen, 
Okay? So, uh, temporal punishment can be atoned for on earth while still living or in purgatory after your death, uh, but eternal punishment can only be atoned for in hell. Now, when you confess a mortal sin, this is why monthly confession is so important to help us stay away from mortal sin. When you confess your mortal sin, it no longer merits eternal punishment. It merits temporal punishment. Okay? Uh, and remember, when you commit a mortal sin, don't wait till you get to confession to tell God you're sorry. Make a perfect act of contrition very, very soon, immediately even, after you commit the mortal sin, because you don't know if you're going to die before you get to confession to confess that mortal sin, and, and confession remains the ordinary channel by which mortal sin is confessed, right? Venial sins can be forgiven other ways, you know, the penitential rite at Mass, confession itself, uh, the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, the 14 works of mercy, the seven corporal for the body, the seven spiritual for the soul, not for the works themselves. I said this many times before on Open Line Tuesday, but rather for the charity they help foster, okay? Uh, but once you confess a mortal sin, it no longer merits eternal punishment. It merits temporal punishment, uh, and this needs to be atoned for. So praise God for the sacraments. The Eucharist and confession are the only two sacraments out of the seven that can keep us... Um, uh, that, excuse me, that can be received over and over and over again. Eucharist and confession can be received over and over and over again. The other five cannot. The other five sacraments have some stipulation imposed upon them as to how often they can be received. But Eucharist and confession can both re be received with much, much frequency. For example, daily Mass. You can receive the Eucharist daily. And I recommend um, at least monthly confession. And if you're struggling with a particular vice, uh, then try to go to confession faithfully every two weeks, if not every week, and share the fact with your confessor that this is a particular vice, this thing you're confessing, so that he understands that it's coming from that angle, and he can give you better advice as a confessor. Uh, great question, and I, I, again, I want to urge you to go to the, to the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, to, to read about how purgatory is indeed uh, de fide. It's, it's a doctrine of the Church, and uh, you can read about purgatory in the Universal Catechism, of the Catholic Church. Uh, look especially at paragraph numbers um, 1031 and 1472. 1031 and 1472. Great question. Thank you so much, Paul. We really appreciate it. Lots happening at this year's EWTN free family celebration. Join us Saturday, August 26th in Birmingham, Alabama. You can enjoy talks from your favorite EWTN radio and television hosts including Father Wade Menezes. You can shop at EWTN's religious catalog, attend Holy Mass, and be part of a televised show. The day's activities culminate with a Eucharistic procession through the streets of Birmingham. Go to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration to find out more and to register. It is all free. Rebecca is in the Republic of Texas listening on Guadalupe Radio. Rebecca, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father. I've Hello. been very concerned about people um, just living together and having children without being married, or 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 I, I've been concerned about the child because I feel like there should be a blessing on a person if he's uh, conceived in matrimony and, and and born in wedlock too. But people tell me that differently the Protestants do, and that. Uh, it's God doesn't hold anything against them, and, and the parents will love them all the same, and so on. But uh, isn't there something, doesn't God have something for that child being conceived in wedlock and born in wedlock? 
Yes, absolutely. It, it's born within a covenant of marriage uh, with a mother and a father, which implies automatically stability, indissolubility, uh, commitment, education for the child in both faith and morals. And uh, while, while a baby born out of wedlock is just as precious and, and just as, as much loved and, and can be as loving as one born in wedlock, um, God's design is to have the child born within this unbreakable and indissoluble covenant between a husband and wife. And it's possible only because they participate in Jesus' everlasting covenant between him and his church. Uh, as partakers of the Trinitarian life through participation in Almighty God's sanctifying grace, they, they can confidently commit themselves to one another, the mother to the father, the father to the mother, knowing that no sin can destroy these mutual promises between them as husband and wife. And, and as John Paul II teaches very beautifully in Familiaris Consortio, the role of the Christian family in the modern world, he says, willed by God in the very act of creation, marriage and the family are interiorly ordained to fulfillment in Christ and have need of his graces in order to be healed from the wounds of sin and restored to their beginning, that is to the full understanding, the full realization of God's plan. So although we're wounded human beings who suffer the effects of the original sin, um, only if we are clear about the greatness of God's call and plan for marriage and family life can we see the importance of our own responsibilities towards it uh, and the way that sin undermines those points about marriage and family, right? To want to turn away from sin and embrace virtue. Um, you know, we, we should really rejoice that Jesus has thought us worthy of so marvelous a calling as husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. Thus, we can find great strength in his saving presence, power, and life. And this is why I love number 1638 of the Catechism so much. It says, quote, from a valid marriage arises a bond between the spouses, which by its very nature is both perpetual and exclusive. Uh, furthermore, in a Christian marriage, the spouses are strengthened and, as it were, consecrated for the duties and dignity of their state by a special sacrament. And this sacrament we call matrimony. You know, so Vatican II emphasized that we're all called to holiness, true enough. Singles, marrieds, widows, widowers, consecrated religious, active and contemplative, no doubt. But the sacrament of marriage is the specific source and original means of sanctification for Christian married spouses and their families. And the child is able to benefit from these realities when he or she is born within a wedlock rather than outside of marriage. Outside of marriage, all these things that I just said are threatened towards the child. Great question. Thank you so much. We are flat out of time. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.